Yeah, thanks for, uh, for having me. Uh, just a quick catch up. You know, some of you, many of you I know, uh, Brandon, I've been gone for about four years now. So, you know, it's cool to come back because a lot of you I don't know. And I view that as a really great thing, a really good uh, sign that God is doing some things. Um, if I don't know you, I, you won't know me without glasses. But if you do know me, you probably did know me without glasses. That's relatively uh, new for me. But um, yeah, so Center Church in Spokane, we're, uh, gosh, we're about three and a half years deep. It's going awesome, uh, and I actually mean that. Uh, I actually legitimately love being there. And uh, the big thing that's happening for us that you can be praying for us for is uh, this Easter, uh, we're actually moving our Easter service out of our building to um, a school that's right down the street. Some of you were here when this church met in a school, and you're like, bro, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. Like, I just lost you for the rest of the day. Uh, the reason is we want to try and be able to have everyone together for one service, but we also... Uh, we meet in this kind of older, traditional church building. It's in an older, established neighborhood. People have been just driving past our building for decades to the point that they don't even realize it's there. What we kind of want to do is just, like, give up the high ground and say, hey, let's just meet on some neutral ground and uh, a place that they're a little more comfortable with. So we're excited about that, and uh, it, we'll see. It could be just, you know, beautiful chaos, or it could be just actual chaos. So we'll, uh, we'll find out how that goes. But, so that's what's going on at Center Church. Thank you for supporting us. I say this every time we come, and every time it's true. This is a safe harbor for Brandy and I. We love this place. We think of you often. You would actually probably be creeped out if you knew how often we think of you. Uh, but we, uh, man, we love this place. You're a part of our family, and uh, you know where we go. Even though we're from Spokane, it's funny because we consider it we consider it a mission field, and uh, this is safety right here for us. So thanks for for letting us continue to be part of your part of your family. Um, if I don't know you, I think probably the thing I, I just got to give you like right up front is uh, I just want to communicate to you the fact that like pastors are normal people. Um, if you have a friend that's a pastor, you're like, yeah, they're an especially strange kind of people. Um, so I'll just give you an example. Like my Sunday morning, I, I normally give a, get up at like 5 a.m. on Sunday morning. Now, some of you, you may not even know that 5 a.m. is like an actual thing. It's just one of those like uphill both ways stories that your parents used to tell you to freak you out. Uh, it's actually real and it's awful. It really is. Don't try it. But the reason I do this is because uh, I'm generally kind of an early riser, but I wouldn't consider myself a morning person, right? Like, I got to warm up to the idea of social contact. I don't know if that's okay for a pastor to be like that, but it is what it is. So I try to get up at 5 and go to the gym that's down the street from my house before Sunday morning. Like, get the blood flow, get my brain functioning, get myself in a, you know, better mood. And uh, last week, I got up, I went to the gym. It's one of those gyms where, like, nobody works there. You just have a key card, you know, for those kinds of hours. So, so the lights are all off. I swipe my key card, and the lights come on. I'm the only person there. Oh, hallelujah. There is a God. I, I go in. I'm on the treadmill. I got my ears in, and I see this car driving in the parking lot. I'm like, oh, no. It's like one of those... Uh, one of those movie, moments you see in the movies where the guy has, like, the little devil and the little angel, you know, one on each shoulder. And, and uh, I had this moment, and this, this older guy comes in, and um, he commits the ultimate gym faux pas. Empty gym. And guess where he went? The treadmill right next to me. There's, like, a dozen of them. And he's on the one right next to me. And so, like, there's a little battle going, like, oh, give him the love of Jesus. Say good morning, you know. Ignore him. Pretend like he's not there. So finally, like, you know, I pulled the earbuds out, and I, I turned to him. I said, how you doing this morning? And he literally grunted at me. <laughs> and I was like, sweet, we're good. <laughs> it was the best thing ever. I was so happy. Um, but I, I just tell you that kind of 
pointless, not pointless, but ridiculous story to just say, um, I need a lot of grace too. I need a lot of grace. And so I shared this verse that's just like an anchor verse for me with the first service. And, uh, you know, they seem to kind of appreciate it, but I thought, you know, we need to like get more in touch with this verse. So does anybody know what a waypoint is? I know Pastor Mike's well familiar with this this uh, principle. So the idea would be, for example, um, you know, back in the olden days when sailors would go out to sea, uh, they would use like the stars, constellations, the North Star. They would use those as their waypoint because you know, they didn't have radar, they didn't have good maps, they didn't know where they were, but they would keep an eye on this point and it would help them know if they're still headed the right direction, right? Um, so I want to give us a waypoint because I want you to grab onto this verse and not only remember it for today, but never let it go for the rest of your life. So I have uh, carefully planned uh, this waypoint. Uh, I'm going to need my friend Adam to come help me out up here. Uh, you are going to really regret sitting in the front row. Uh, so why don't you just stand right here uh, as if this orange shirt wasn't enough of a waypoint. Uh, I'm going to need you to wear this, my man. I'm going to need you to put this on your head for me. Okay. Um, now, uh, this has nothing to do with the verse. This is just so that you'll hopefully remember something happened, a weird guy with a hat, might have had something to do uh, with, you know, partnering with what Jesus has already done. Good job, my man. Here's this verse. It's in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, and this is what it says. It says, at just the right time. It wasn't, you know, a nebulous just arbitrary time. It was just the right time while we were still powerless, powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. If there's any perfect people in this room, God bless you. Um, you can tune me out right now because you're not in this verse. But if you're flawed, if there's days when you're like just grumpy and you don't want to talk to the person next to you, if you made mistakes, if you feel shame, if you failed, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, you were exactly the person that Jesus died for. He didn't die for perfect people. He died for ungodly people. Jesus died for you. Now, think about this. In my mind, Adam, I think, so like the polished up Sunday morning version of me, you know, after the 5 a.m. gym thing, that's the me that Jesus died for? No. Think of the moment that if everyone else here knew, you would be most ashamed of. Jesus saw you there, and you know what he thought? You're worth saving. And he died for you even in that moment. He died for even the worst version of you. Adam, you have done an awesome job, my man. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. I think the thing that God would say to us today is, you know what? Wherever you are, just come home. Wherever you've drifted to, that may be a long ways away. That may be just a few inches, just come home to me. When I was a kid, my family, uh, we lived in Montana. Don't judge me for that. Like for some of you, you're like, yeah, that's awesome. And some of you are like, so you know how to read? Uh, barely, <laughs> barely. Uh, we had these friends, these family friends who had a lake cabin. cabin. And uh, some of my best childhood memories are on this lake cabin. And one of their sons was my age. His name was Jason. And we were like inseparable best friends. You know what I mean? When you were a kid, you had, you had a best friend. Some of the best days of my life were spent on Lake Inez. And uh, it was a good-sized lake, boats, water skiing, kneeboarding was kind of the thing back in. That kind of dates me, probably. Uh, but we were 10. 
So everyone else was just exhausted by like two or three in the afternoon. But when you're 10 and you're at the lake, you're just go, 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 go. So everyone else would come in and then we'd just like grab our inner tubes and go float on the lake. Like we'd just get out in the water and just dork around until it was like dangerously dark and our parents would make us come back in. Well, we're out there this one particular afternoon and we're messing around, we're pushing each other off, we're wrestling, we're watching the other boats, all this. And I look up and somebody had moved our cabin. It was not there anymore. Our cabin was like a half a mile down the lake. I could barely see it. It was so far. It took us, felt like a couple hours to paddle all the way back there. What I know now is, like every other lake, this lake had an inlet and an outlet, and the water slowly moves toward the outlet, and so did we. We drifted away from what was our home. Slowly, incrementally, imperceptibly, drifting away, slowly but surely. And isn't that how it happens in life? You're just dealing with what's right in front of you. Whatever's right here, raising the kids, sporting events, music events, drama, gonna help out in the classroom, or you're building a career, I gotta run to this, I gotta run to that, get involved, even, even really great things, even virtuous things like church, family vacation, things like that. You know, we're just busy dealing with what's right in front of us and what's happening slowly, imperceptibly, Unless we're keeping an eye on it, we're slowly drifting wherever life, wherever life is taking us. I read, this, um, I read this letter that Charles Darwin, the father of atheism, uh, not atheism, the father of evolution, had written to his wife. And uh, he talked about this process in his autobiography of how he lost his faith at such a slow rate that by the time he realized it was happening, it didn't matter to him anymore, it didn't bother him because the work was completely done. And he wrote in this letter to his wife, Emma, he said, the loss of religious faith is a slow and fragile process like the raising of continents. What, I can, say to, what can I say to you except that the process is complete? That's how the drift happens. Our natural leaning will take us away. There was this, uh, there's this research group called Gallup. They do all kinds of political polls and that kind of thing. They also do um, a lot of statistics around faith and sociology and those kinds of things. In 2014, they did a study, and they found that right about 9 out of 10 Americans believe in the existence of God. Now, we would look around our country and probably guess, it seems like a lot less than 9 out of 10 believe in the existence of God. But what the study revealed was that most of us believe in God, but a very small number of Americans actually have a sense of closeness to God, actually feel like they know God, who he is, what he's like, what he's all about. We have awareness, but no closeness. What does that tell me? That tells me it's intrinsic. It's built into us. We know, God, we know God's out there. We just don't know how to get to him, so what do we do? We deal with what's right here, and with the drift takes us away. But God has an answer for this. In Jeremiah 29, 13, it's right after the verse many of you know and have, you know, on your coffee cups. Just a couple, couple of verses later, it, God said to his people, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God said that specifically to that group of people in that time. That was, that was written to a particular group of people. But then in the New Testament, there's a guy named James who actually was the brother of Jesus you think your siblings were strange to grow up with. You can imagine what that would be like. Jesus said in James, or James said in James 4, 8, that if you'll come near to God, 
he will come near to you. Now that verse, when James wrote that, he was actually writing to what was at the time all Christians everywhere. That's, that's for all of us. If you'll draw near to God, if you'll come near to him, he will come near to you. The Gallup statistic tells me we believe in God. We have intrinsic understanding that there is a God. We just don't know how to draw near to him. We just don't understand how to do that. And so our busyness becomes a coping mechanism, becomes the way that we get through life. The drift slowly happens. Maybe you were a Christian kid, grew up in church and all that, and then you went away to college and really had your faith challenged by you know, some antagonist who just thought people of faith are intellectual lightweights. That happens. Uh, maybe you had a negative experience in church and it repelled you, or maybe, uh, maybe you prayed for something and you felt like God just didn't come through in the way that you needed him to. Maybe you lost someone or something significant to you. Maybe you had trauma as a child that you just haven't bounced back from. Whatever, there could be a million different ways that you may feel the drift, but we all do it. We all do what the prophet Isaiah expressed uh, in chapter 53 of Isaiah. He said, we all like sheep have gone astray. I do that. Um, I'm a pastor. I stand up here and teach the Bible all the time. It's what I it's what I do. It's what I love. But guess what? I know what it's like to feel failure. I know what it's like to feel the effects of the drift in my life. I know what it's like to look in the mirror and not really be very proud of the person that's looking back at you. I think all of us can relate to that on some level because we all feel the drift. So like I said earlier, I, I get up at about 5 a.m. on Sundays. Yes, yes, that's a real thing. Um, it happens. And because I wouldn't normally wake up on, at 5 a.m. ever for any reason, guess what has to happen? There has to be an alarm. There has to be a wake-up call. And that's what I'm hoping that we can have here this morning, a wake-up call, an awakening to a few different things, but specifically awakening to the fact that God is using our longings to reel us back to him. So I just want to, uh, I just want to dive into a story that's kind of a, a well-known one. It's called the prodigal son, we refer to it as, or the lost son in Luke chapter 15, that talks about this universal understanding that we all have longings. What's the point of those longings? So, uh, so let's start here. The, the greatest band uh, of my time is unquestionably you 2 If you disagree with that, you're wrong. Uh, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who love you too and people who don't know what's going on. Uh, so, no, I don't, I don't mean that. I'm just kidding. Well, kind of. The, the best song on the best album by the best band of my generation has a very famous hook line, and I want to see if you, can, if you can finish it. So I'll sing the first half, and you can let the uh, second half out. The line says, I still haven't found... Gosh, you guys are good. That was not even like a generational thing. Uh, we all understand what it's like to search and not find. It's a catchy because we connect with it. It doesn't just sound cool. We're like, yeah, I get that. I get that. There's still places in my life where I haven't found what I'm looking for. I have longings. The longings are common to all of us, but here's the thing that you got to be aware of. The longings that you experience are going to take you one of two directions. Sometimes they will take you toward the best, most fulfilling relationships and experiences of your life. But sometimes those longings will take you toward unbelievable sorrow and regret. 
Your longings are going to pull you in one direction. And so it's so critical for us to just be aware of them so that we can point them in the right direction. So the lost son, what we find here is um, a father who has two sons, and the younger one has, has come to him with his issue. Uh, in Luke, let's see here, in Luke, in Luke 15, verse 11, it says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. Now, this is a pivotal moment in the life of the younger son, because he's woken up to this reality. He's saying to himself, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. He still has an unrest in his soul. He's identifying it right now, and it becomes really obvious in this moment when he says to his father, why don't you give me what I've been working for? Why don't you give me the thing that I think will fulfill me? What, a, what an incredible moment. And you know what he does? He falls into the trap that I have fallen into a thousand times, thinking that the solution is just right over that hill. It's just right there in the elusive beyond. Whatever's over there, that's the thing. That's the thing that's going to fill the void. That's where the sun is at. And we find this pretty self-absorbed young man who basically says, uh, you know what? I don't really care about all the things that you've worked to build for me, Father. In his ancient Near Eastern culture, all there was was honoring your parents. Uh, there wasn't another option. What you did was you stayed, you took care of, you cultivated what your parents had worked to build, you took care of them in their old age, and then you honored them even after their death by continuing to build on what they had built. That's all there was. There was no door number two. That was his only option. But he says to his dad the ultimate insult, you're dead to me. I don't care what you've worked for. Just give me my money so I can leave. Just, just give me what I want so I can go do my thing. As a parent, you can imagine the pain, the depth of, of anguish that that must, have, that must have welled up inside the father, but he concedes. He gives him his share of the inheritance. But what the son is really expressing is something we've all felt. There's got to be more. This current thing just isn't doing it for me. It's just not giving me what I want. I don't have satisfaction just yet. And we, we respond, maybe not the same way he does, uh, but some of the things we do in response to this is um, we change addresses or we change relationships or we change churches or cars or all manner of material things, right? We've, we've all felt that, right? The, the shoes on the wall are better than the shoes that I'm wearing. We've all, we've all experienced that. It's part of all of our lives. So really quickly, there's three different longings that this son is, is expressing, and I just want to roll through them real quick. Uh, the first of one is a desire for purpose, you ever felt the weight? Like, what's the point of this? I, I, need, to, I need to find a purpose. Um, especially, you know, as a young person, when we're sort of just venturing out into the world, we're trying to find something that will give us a sense of purpose. I have, uh, I have three kids. Uh, they are 8, 11, 12. Did I get that right? Okay, good. Uh, and uh, it's really interesting because I identify even in in my own children, when they're like four or five years old, they start talking about what they want to do when they grow up, what they want to do. What, by that, what they mean is what they're going to do for their occupation. Now, maybe I'm a complete slacker, but I'm not putting any financial pressure on them at this stage. Like, I'm not, I'm not telling them, hey, you need to start pulling your weight around here. I have no idea why they would even be aware of what they want to do with their adult life occupationally when they're four years old. I, I'm not pressuring them. Maybe I should be. I don't think they're aware of the financial realities of adulthood, but what they are aware of is the fact that their life has its own 
unique purpose, and they're already at that stage trying to find it, even at the earliest stage right there. And I know for me, my desire for purpose has influenced so many of the decisions I've made. My desire to, be a, to find purpose influenced my decision to become a pastor for sure. I bet it's influenced a lot of the decisions you've made, wanting to do something significant with our lives. It's a need that we all feel. The second one that the younger son expresses is the need for love, acceptance, approval. Man, this, this motivates us to do so many things. In verse 13, it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. And in fact, we learn from the older brother that uh, later on in the story that he actually spent his wealth on prostitutes. That was where he decided to invest and pursue that fulfillment. And it reminded me of a really interesting line that a guy named G.K. Chesterson, now that is a distinguished name for sure. Uh, not surprisingly to you, he was an English poet, uh, philosopher, writer. Uh, he said this, he said, the man who rings the bell at the brothel unconsciously does so seeking God. And I think it's true. What he's saying is, it's a pursuit of love. It's a pursuit of fulfillment. And I think we even see this in just sort of a silly, you know, personal way. Uh, if, you're, if you're a married woman, have you ever had a thought like this? Uh, man, if my husband would just keep his hands to himself for like five minutes, that'd be awesome. Uh, no, no one here? Okay, I guess you're right, sir. Sorry. Um, here, here's, here's the thing. You may have thought that he just couldn't control what was inside of him, and I'm not saying you're wrong about that. But what I am saying in addition to that is that what he's really pursuing is approval, acceptance, love. Because what is intimacy between a husband and a wife if not the ultimate expression of approval, acceptance, and love? It's the thing that we deeply, deeply long for. We long for that connection. And the sooner we awaken to the fact that that's a real need, it's Sometimes we don't like to come to that realization because it makes it f us feel like um, we're dependent on someone else or we're not personally as strong as we want to be. Uh, I don't think there's a problem with admitting the fact that, you know what, I have a need to be loved. I have a need to be approved of. It's a deep internal longing for all of us. And the sooner we're okay with it, the sooner we can point it in the right direction. The need for love. So then there's this kind of crazy twist in this son's story. Eventually, he runs out of money, a famine hits the land, and he does something that no good kosher Jewish boy would ever, ever, ever do. He decides to get a job at a pig farm. And then it gets so bad that he does something that absolutely none of us would do uh, under any circumstances. He decides he actually wants their food. That's how desperate he is. Uh, anybody here ever been to a pig farm? A uh, couple, couple takers. Um, you can probably vouch for this. Vouch for this. Uh, the rest of you, you don't want the pig's food. It is not a pretty picture. It's not something desirable in any way. But he finds himself so hard up, so desperate, that he wants it. And it's here in this hour of desperation that he awakens to his longing for meaning. It's the why questions in life. Like, what's the point of this? Have you ever found yourself, maybe you've been at a job for years and years and you sort of look back and you're like, what was that for? 
or maybe in a relationship for a long period of time, you're like, what are we doing here? Like, what's, what's going on? What's the point of all this? That's, that's where this son is at. How did this happen to me? And the younger son comes to the end of his trying to find purpose because he finds that it's actually not just over that next hill. And he comes to the end of his trying to find love and acceptance because he finds that it's actually not where he thought it would be. And then he starts to ask the question, why? Now we've really gotten down to bedrock. Now we're really deep, deep inside what's going on. He's asking, why am I such a mess? Why is my life so screwed up? How did I end up in this position? And when the frustration brings us to a place of wondering why things are such a mess and what the point of all this is, what we tend to do is we look at what's right in front of our face and we get busy because I got to take the kids to school and I got to get to work. And, and pretty soon we just, we get in that machine, you know, and years can go by and we still haven't even really tried to answer the question. We could do that or maybe we could say, I bet God is trying to awaken my soul to him. I bet God is trying to reel me in. Studying the Bible, observation, experience, uh, they all tell me this one thing. The deepest work that God has ever done in my life came as a byproduct of struggle. I think if you're following Christ, if you have been for any length of time, you know that's true. God works most deeply in our lives during the hard times. It's, it's almost never during the easy times, because during the easy times, I'm way too busy drifting to let God work in my life. Or at best, during the easy times, I'm too hard trying to fight the drift, prevent it from happening. But Jesus comes along, and he provides a solution. And this is the example that Jesus is trying to make in the story. I don't know the details of your story, but I love the fact that Pastor Mike talked about your story partnering with what Jesus has really already done. Jesus has already completed the work. We just have to cooperate with it. I don't know what your story is, but I do know that the answer to these longings is not waiting for you in a foreign land. The answer to these longings is closer than you think. Consider this possibility. Maybe God wants to be found worse than you want to find him. Maybe he wants to be found even worse than you want to find him. What I do know is that our longings, our need for something more, that's God's mechanism to calling us back. That longing can turn into frustration, but just know that's God's mechanism for saying, come, come back, come home, come with me. That's, that's the way he does it. We see it over and over throughout the Bible. We see it over and over throughout history. So I just want to tell you a quick story that I think will illustrate that, and then we'll, we'll wrap our, our time up. might be a familiar story to some of you. Um, back in 2002, it was on June 5th of 2002, there was a young girl named Elizabeth Smart who was taken from her home in suburban Salt Lake City. Does anybody remember that story? Yeah, it was all over the national news. Uh, a couple, a man and a woman, actually came into her bedroom and literally stole her out from her parents' house. And, uh, and they held her captive for a very long time. And you might remember just shortly after she was taken, there was a day that her father, whose name is Ed Smart, walked out the front door of his house to an army of reporters camped out on his front yard. And he got in front of the cameras and he said, Elizabeth, if you're out there, we want you to know we're doing everything we can to bring you home. We're doing everything we can 
to find you. And then he did exactly what you would do and exactly what I would do in his situation. He begged her captors to let her go. Just let her come home. Whatever you need, whatever you want, it's yours. Just, just let her go. I think that's what you would do. I think that's what I would do. And for the next several months, um, all the way from June 5th until March of the next year, Elizabeth Smart was held captive by this couple. And eventually, they got up the courage to actually start taking her out in public. They would dress her up in disguises. She put wigs on, and they would, they would take her out in public. And she began to identify with them as her actual family. Crazy. Uh, they abused her in every conceivable way, repeatedly, uh, throughout this time. And Elizabeth suffered with what is known as Stockholm Syndrome. Maybe you've heard of that. Basically, what happened was, because of the trauma, because of the abuse, she actually began to believe what she was being told, and she began to believe what she was experiencing. And she began to actually identify with and sympathize with the people who had taken her prisoner. And uh, one day, they were uh, not far from her home, actually. They never went more than about 18 miles from her home. And one day, she was on a street corner, and a police officer spotted her. And he came up and started making casual conversation with her, just chatting. Something about her made him stop. And in the course of the conversation, she blurted out, completely unprovoked, this sentence. I know you think I'm Elizabeth Smart, but I'm not. Just, just jumped out. And, uh, of course, he was wise to what was going on, but he asked her about her wig, and she insisted it was her real hair. And he even asked her about the people she was with, and she insisted that those were her real parents. I mean, she was lost. She was really lost. Elizabeth Smart had slowly drifted away and been replaced by this new person. She had um, lost her identity, for lack of a better term. And this police officer got right in front of her, and he looked her right in the face. And he said, Elizabeth, I know who you are. You're Elizabeth Smart. And he, uh, he actually pulled out a missing persons picture of her and showed it to her. And on that day, she woke up to who she really was. And if you're here today and you've experienced the drift, the thing I want you to hear from God, I know who you are. Just come home. There's a, there's a home for you. There's a safe place for you. Maybe you've gone so far that you don't recognize yourself anymore. Maybe you've you, you know, you're just far enough away that nobody can really tell, but you're trending in the wrong direction. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. But you can come home. What I do know about this place right here is that you can come home to God right here, and there's nobody here that will judge you. Because you know what? At just the right time, when we were all powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, every one of us. Every one of us understands the fact that we all need God's grace. And I just want to read for you the end of the story of the, the lost son, because I think sometimes we get in the spot where um, the shame that we feel is enough to make us think, you know what, God wouldn't want me, or those people wouldn't want me, or uh, there's a variety of reasons why we, uh, why we don't come back to God. But I want to read the story because I think the end of the story will tell you how God will respond to you. Uh, I get this, this idea in my mind sometimes that, okay, well, if I turn around and I go back to God, what's going to happen is then I'm going to have to work for it because there's got to be restitution. Um, 
But I want you to see how God will actually respond to you because that's, that's the point Jesus is really making. Luke 15, verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, the younger son, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while we, he was still a long way off, he's, he's not there yet, he's still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. If you decide to come home to respond to God, you know what he'll do? He'll celebrate. That's all. Jesus has already done the work. The punitive part, the, uh, the earning it, that's already done. Someone already did that for you. So whether it's miles and miles away or it's just a few feet, come home. That's God's message for you. I'm going to ask Pastor Mike to come up and, and close it down for us. Thank you, Pastor Kelly. <clears throat> a powerful word and a powerful truth. Would you guys stand with me and we're going we're gonna to get ready to close. There was a couple of just incredible truths <clears throat> that I just felt the Lord sharing with us that were really powerful. And I love at the end of the story, two really profound things happened for the, the son. The first thing is he came to his senses, right? And I think for some of us, we've been drifting and we haven't even realized the drift we haven't looked up and saw how far away we've gotten and it's time to come to our senses and look around and say, wow, this isn't God's best for me. I'm too far from his heart and from his will. And so for some of us, just coming to our senses in that moment might be the life-altering, destiny-changing moment for you today. And then I love the heart of God that just looked at his son who was a long ways off and initiated the pursuit. And I think uh, what Pastor Kelly said is true. Sometimes we feel we got to work our way back in to God's good favor, and that's never been the case. If you believe that, then you, you just haven't met the Jesus who is described in this book yet. And so let me introduce you. We, we, we don't have to do it. There's nothing you can do to increase the volume of love God has for you, just like nothing you can do can decrease that. Stop trying to determine how much you're loved. You're loved because you're loved. You're loved because you're loved. So we're going to close in prayer, and I just want to uh, have just a, an honest moment of opportunity for you to have that kind of come-to-Jesus moment. Maybe for you, it's just a come-to-your-senses moment. And uh, so it's not any more spiritual again when, when we close our eyes, but I want to give you an opportunity just to kind of push out all distractions. And so if you would, would you just close your eyes for a moment? And I'd just like to invite you in there, in, in your life, in your circumstance, how do you need to come to your senses this morning? Where are the places that you've drifted too far away? Where's the stuff that you've became, that has been able to become normal in your life? That if you had your senses, you would never have gone and worked with pigs. You would never have claimed or desired their food. You would never have gone to that place. You would never have rejected uh, the benefits of, of life inside the family with your father. But you just need a moment to come to your senses. And I'm just gonna pray 
that we would have that moment. And for some of us, we've felt <clears throat> maybe it's just been too far to come home. You're just like, I'm just going, I've just been going too fast, too far. And you just need the realization that it, it isn't about how far you go. It's about what Jesus already did for you. So God, in this moment, would you open our eyes? I pray like in the spiritual sense, you would just remove the scales from our eyes, the things that have blinded us to the truth of, of drifting. And, and God, we've been playing and having fun and we've been doing all this other stuff and we've missed your heart and we've drifted. God, I pray we would come to our senses. I pray in areas where, where we have given up, where we've moved so far away that we've just begun to harden our heart. And we, we, God, would we come, Lord, like, like, the, like the sun, would we just come to our senses? And then, Father, would you run? Would you bridge the gap? Would you accelerate the part that you do? And, and I thank you so much that your word is so clear. The, the promise isn't that everything will just work out in a way that we want it to work out. The promise is always that you'll come close and you'll come near and that will be sufficient for wherever we are. The promise is always your presence. God, would your presence come? I pray where we felt distant, where we've been distant, where we've run, would your presence come? I pray in our circumstance, whatever it is, where we need your presence, would it come? I pray in our family. I pray physically in our, our body. I pray in our relationships. I pray in our work. I pray in all of the areas that we begin to, uh, <laughs> to move from this place into. Would your presence just be there? Would it guide and direct our hands? Would it give us, God, uh, wisdom? And would you help us to stay focused? And then I pray for those of us that are searching for the same things that this man in this story was looking for. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for love. We're looking for all of the validation and things that come with that. Would you help us to recognize all those things are made available in you? We don't have to run. We don't have to search. You just provide it. God, thanks. Thanks for recalibrating us. Thanks for just reminding us. Thanks for pointing us north. Thanks for being our waypoint so that we can focus again and we can find our bearings and find our direction and we can go from this place not the same as we came in. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.